0: Paul Lucas worked at GlaxoSmithKline, a huge international pharmaceutical company, for 25 years. 16 of those years, he was the CEO and president. He retired in 2012, but recently he's been speaking out about Canada's Seemingly inability to produce vaccines at home or deliver them properly, the list of uh, crises grows every single day. So we've reached out to Mr. Lucas to see if he can help us understand what's going on a little better. Welcome, thank you for being here.
1: It's good to be here, Pamela.
0: Why can't we get I mean, there's so many questions, but why can't we get enough vaccine? What do you think is at the root of it?
1: Well, uh, as you know, I wrote an an article for the Financial Post and and kind of hypothesized about why we're in the situation we're in. And I think, you know, Canadians need to understand that, you know, there's been a lot of noise around vaccines, a lot of diversions. But at the end of the day, the Canadian government ordered six million doses of vaccine between Moderna and Pfizer to be delivered between now and the end of March. And no matter what is done or said, that's what we're going to get. <laughs> and nothing's going to change.
0: And we have 37 million people.
1: That's right. So we will be able to vaccinate 3 million people by the end of March at the earliest, because those may not actually be delivered till the end mm-hmm. of March. So, so that's the situation we're in. And, and the good question is, you know, why did we only order 6 million right. doses to the end of March? And that's the question I've been trying to get journalists to, to ask the prime minister. Uh, because I think, you know, it's unacceptable as to what's happened there. The um,
0: stories that we're seeing uh, recently, the Globe, uh, Globe and Mail has been doing some stories. Certainly, Global News is being doing some stories. Going back to the beginning where, again, the flaw in the system was we were going to do a deal with the Chinese. And in to make a very long story short, they reneged. And then we were kind of way back in the list of asking for and ordering vaccines from other producers.
1: Yeah. So Mr. Trudeau continues to say that, you know, we were early negotiating contracts with pharmaceutical companies. And I, you know, I I, I have to be skeptical about that because you'd have to ask a question if, you know, Moderna says that we were the first ones to sign a contract with them. Yet that was for 2 million doses between now and the end of March. So, um, yes, I think we wasted time at the beginning of this pandemic in negotiating contracts. We must have. Um, and, yes, the Canadian government focused on trying to find out how they could deliver domestic supply of a vaccine. And, um, you know, they, they pursued the Chinese vaccine. They put money into Medicago. They put money into Veto. But the reality is, is none of those were viable. And they should have known that, you know, they should have known that none of those organizations would be able to able to deliver a vaccine until late 2021, probably. 21. I
0: mean, what we understand from the situation in my province at Vito Endervac in Saskatchewan is that, yes, they're building a facility, but the government is doling out the money on an annual basis. Well, you don't build a building one room at a time. You build a building so that you can either manufacture this or you can't.
1: And that's where the lack of foresight was in terms of ensuring that we had domestic uh, vaccine capability. So if you go back to H1N1, when yeah. Waxo had the contract. You were president
0: and CEO then in 2009, right? Was, in the, yeah. yeah. In okay, I go ahead.
1: I was integrally involved yeah. in delivering that vaccine. So we produced it, got it out. We were the only manufacturer. And at the end of that, people, we all sat down and said, okay, what did we learn from this? And mm-hmm. one of the key learnings was we got to make sure for the next pandemic that we have domestic supply of vaccine and, and that we have more than one manufacturer. Right. Well, we, didn't, we didn't do it. We, we, didn't, we didn't follow up on that. And uh, here's where we are.
0: OK, so explain to us what happened in that situation. So they uh, you developed vaccine, you had a contract to develop a vaccine then for the next crisis for for pandemic readiness, if you will. How do you do that? Like what is what's the how do you prepare for a next crisis that you don't know what it is?
1: It's a very good question. And actually, uh, public health and uh GlaxoSmithKline did a great job of preparing for that. So Glaxo had a contract with uh, with, uh, the federal government, public health, to produce a pandemic vaccine when needed. So you can't just build a plant and have it sit there empty and then wait for the pandemic and then make a vaccine. So what they did was we uh, Glaxo produced the annual flu vaccine. Right. And the Canadian government guaranteed us a certain portion of the national uh, flu vaccine contract to make sure that the plant continued to run effectively. They also paid us a pandemic preparedness fee, which allowed us to maintain the facility, and we actually expanded it uh, so that we would be ready. So that, and then the pandemic hit, I remember David Butler-Jones contacted me and said, it's here you now we geared up, we produced the vaccine in a few months, and we vaccinated 40 percent of Canadians by the end of the year of 2009. So that all worked really well. We were fortunate in that situation and that it was the kind of vaccine that we could actually make. So, right. uh, so that, all, that all worked well, but again, um, the problem this time around is that this is a very different virus, and, as you know, the mRNA vaccine is yeah. very different than, than usual.
0: But where is that facility and where's that capability? I mean, could there not be work going on there?
1: At Blackso, you mean? Yeah. Well, you know, what I'm, what I'm very disappointed about, and Canadians should be, is that, you know, the Canadian government, and, and, and this is part of the problem, the federal government, the liberal governments, successive liberal governments, have not had any relationship with the pharmaceutical industry. They They decided... In you were kind of enemy
0: number one back yeah. in, yeah. Yeah, so there's Over no
1: relationship there other than, you know, as a regulator and they're a customer, and that's it. So, you know, what should have been happening was that the federal government, public health, the health department should have been working with the pharmaceutical industry since 2009, the last, the mm-hmm. last pandemic, and saying, okay, what's happening with vaccine technology what could vaccines of the future look like? What kinds of viruses could we encounter? And therefore, what kind of capability do we need? They would have talked to Glaxo, who has a plant in Quebec City. They would have talked to Sanofi, who has a plant in Toronto. And perhaps just with the two of them, developed a plan to uh, ensure that we had, you know, the, the biological manufacturing capability that you need for mRNA vaccines. Because that, that's not new technology. Right. Um, It's existed in Canada for a while. We could have and should have been prepared for this this
0: is just i think breathtaking for people who are sitting there wondering where this vaccine is ever going to come from um, the the fight I don't want to get too diverted on this but I mean i remember going this battle going back to the 1960s with the current prime minister's father over yeah. uh, patent protection for drugs yeah. and that was really the point uh, you guys were the bad guys because you wanted to keep your patents and protect it forever and make a bunch of money, and everybody wanted generic drugs and make it cheap and accessible, and yeah. the war unfolded.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I, I worked with government for oh, 30 years of my career trying to get them to understand that was a fail, you know, that was a failing strategy. And you know, it took this long to prove I was right, but you know, <laughs> it was a failing strategy. They, you know, the Trudeau government in 1968 passed compulsory licensing. Patents disappeared. You're not going to invest if you don't have protection for your intellectual property. The industry started disappearing very quickly. You know, Mulroney got into power. He, he improved the patent laws. The industry actually started to reinvest, went from $100 million in R&D to $1 billion in R&D very quickly. But then it started to deteriorate again, and the federal government didn't live up to its side of the bargain. And uh, that investment, again, started to deteriorate. And through the credit years and, uh, you know, and onward, uh, this Canada just did, you know, was not a good place to invest for the pharma sector. And, you know, they, they chose... So you go
0: somewhere else if you're a company. Yeah.
1: Exactly. They, they went somewhere else, uh, like the UK, like the US, yeah. like Europe. And, and you know, they're not, we're not great friends in those places necessarily, mm-hmm. but, you know, they have a, a good relationship that leads to the kind of success on vaccines that we have today.
0: So we're hearing now about this um, Ontario company that's going to have a manufacturing facility in, in Alberta. W- what's the timeline on that?
1: Well, yeah, this is Providence you're talking about, I yeah. think, is it? Yeah. So they came out, they came out of the, the woods yesterday, I guess. And uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, they're a startup company. They say they've got technology, the mRNA technology that they can produce a vaccine. But the reality is they're just starting phase yeah. one. That means they have no hope of having an approved vaccine. Probably, they, they don't have any hope before the end of this year. And
0: they also said that they couldn't get their
1: phone calls returned
0: and whether it was government or the media to say, hey, we're here, at least we're trying.
1: Yeah. And I think that's another example. And I don't know what the real situation is with that company. But, you know, I think that's another thing. (laughs) I mean, the Canadian government, the Fed's just, you know, the 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 innovation minister outgoing and Mm -hmm. his his, uh, predecessors. Spent no time talking with the pharmaceutical sector, no time trying to understand the life sciences industry. Uh, perhaps if they had, they would have known about Providence. They would have known about this other company that says they could have produced a vaccine. So, and you know, they the veto story is an interesting one, as as is Metacago, because both of those organizations should have been funded a long time ago exactly. by the government. And they didn't do it. You know, they they poured some money into Veto, but not the kind of not the kind of money that you need to actually produce sixty million vaccines in three months. You know.
0: Actually, walk us through some of that. Uh, why this is, as you say, new technology? The uh, the Pfizer and the Moderna, based on a different way of attacking the um, uh, the virus. When we see now the discussion about and the provinces have been, you know, trying to figure out what to do, whether they give everybody one shot of what they've got and uh, and hope for the best. the numbers are about 50% protection, or whether they hold back that second dose and try and do you know, everybody the right way and make that 21-day window. But then all of a sudden, the 21-day window became a 27-day, and now it's 45. And it's, it's kind of all the way through this. We've seen wear masks, don't wear masks. 21 days is important. Oh, now 45 will work. How, the, how are we supposed to figure out what's really true? Do you have any insight
1: Well, I I do have some. And I think, um, you know, again, the root of all of this, all of these issues around Uh how long should the interval be and the six doses versus five and all that for Canada is completely due to the fact that we ordered so few vaccines till Uh the end of March. It's all due to that. And, you know, the reality is, you know, I I, I come from a pharma background where highly that industry is highly regulated. Ah, uh, the approved dosing regimen for those vaccines is three weeks and four weeks for for Pfizer and moderna. Um, in the u s, if anybody in the industry suggested otherwise, they could go to jail. And in Canada, it is illegal to suggest that you know it can be used in another way. Now, our public health people in Canada tend to be you know they're they're pretty good, some of the thinkers, and you know, they've come up with, well, we could move it to 42 days because some of the data in the clinical trials that were done suggests that you could do that. So that's probably acceptable. Uh, but if you start pushing it to 60 days and 90 days and that sort of thing. You know, you're really you're really not doing it based on science. And, I, you know, I could I personally cannot support that. We have it's a to, wing
0: and a prayer. Yeah,
1: we have to we have to administer that vaccine properly. Uh, and I'm sure that was part of the deal that Pfizer and Moderna made is that, you know, we'll sell you the vaccine, but you have to use this properly. You have to use it quickly and you have to use it properly. So,
0: well, that's the thing. So if you're a provincial premier and you're sitting there because they're the guys that are on the front line, right, yeah. they have to make that decision. I mean, so in that situation, what do you do? Do you get at least some of it in arms across a province and hope and pray that the second round arrives? Or do you hold it back?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. I feel badly for the provinces because, yeah. uh, you know, they've taken flack. And the reality is, is that the problem is not at the provincial level, it's the federal level. You know, there was it took a while to get the logistics up and running, but they, they know how to do that now. So that's not an issue but um yeah when it comes to the dosing regimen I feel badly for them because they are stuck so yeah. but I think a couple of them you know have taken a pragmatic approach which is look we need to make sure we've got a second dose that we can administer within 42 days at the at the most Quebec's yeah. gone even further than that yeah. but but 42 days is really the stretch you don't want to go any further than that so The the smart thing to do is prioritize the people who should get it, give them their first dose, uh, but make sure you've got the second dose for them. Yeah, and that's
0: the problem. They were told they did and now the uh, wh- why is uh, this is another question people have of course is Pfizer just discovers in the middle of this that it's time to expand the plant there was no existing other facilities where they could go so there was no disruption in supply chain.
1: Yeah, um you know, I I feel I feel badly for Pfizer too because Yeah, yeah. You know, Pfizer and Moderna have saved the world on this pandemic. I mean, that sounds like a strong statement. No,
0: but it's, and this was Operation Warp Speed and the Americans gave them a ton of money
1: and said, solve this. Yeah, and you know, one of the reasons maybe why we don't have vaccine early is because we contributed nothing to the development of those vaccines. I mean, Mr. Trudeau says, well, we ordered a lot of vaccine and that helped the companies. That's not what they needed. They needed to minimize the risk upfront you know, and, and speed through the system. And Warp Speed did that. It was actually run by the fellow who used to run Glaxo's vaccine development. Oh, okay. So he came from industry. Yeah. You know, and, and he knows how to develop vaccines and it worked. And we should have done the same thing, you know, but we didn't do that. We always want to go to people that don't know anything about industry and don't know anything about vaccine development and put them in charge.
0: Well, this is I mean, I guess I have to go to these stories that we've been reading about what is going on inside the public health authority in in Canada And, and you have people putting their names to it it's not you know they're not hiding in the shadows basically saying we've lost the expertise uh, where we used to have people who were informed and had relationships with the industry and knew a little bit about science and epidemiology and all of these things now it's just become a place where we rotate through the regular everyday bureaucrat from some other department one day they're working in transport and the next day they're uh, working at you know the public health authority. This is really scary.
1: Yeah, that, that was shocking. That is shocking that they would do that. Um, you know, and and as a result, they scrapped GFIN, which was the intelligence network. Right. Which could have prevented a lot of this around the pandemic. And I, I make the point that, you know, it, it, we should have done so much better on this pandemic. And we made you know, the federal government made multiple mistakes. Um, you know, I, I asked the question, you know, why couldn't we have been like uh, Taiwan? You know, m- minimal impact. Now people will say, well, Taiwan's small and it's an island. Well, right. we could be an island too. Close the borders down like the Atlantic Canada did, you know, right. and they, they minimize the impact. But we didn't, you know, they the <laughs> the liberal government scrapped deep in. And therefore we didn't know this was coming. And we got taken by surprise and they acted too late. And
0: yeah, they got some warnings in December and January, but went, nah, maybe it won't and they were taking, I think, but you would know better than me, way too much advice from the WHO.
1: Yeah, I think you know that was that was part of the problem too. And you know, I guess we'll find out one day what happened there with China and so on, yeah. what their influence was. Um but you know, it was it, We should not be in this situation. Canadians should be outraged that people are dying every day, that, you know, businesses are closing every day. It didn't need to be this way. And the federal government of Canada needs to take accountability for that. And, you know, Mr. Trudeau stands up there every day. And I'm not that political a guy. But, you know, he stands up there every day. And it's almost propaganda now. You know, we have Mm -hmm. the best vaccine program in the world. You know, we did more deals than anybody else. We've got more, you know, four, six times as much vaccine as we need as a country, and none just of that not true. Yeah, none of that is true. You know, <laughs> you just look at the facts and the data, and it and it isn't true. We don't have the best vaccine plan. Yes, we did seven deals, but so did Europe, so did the UK, so did the US. We're no different than them.
0: And I guess it's not surprising. I mean, we talk about vaccine nationalism and what we're hearing out of the EU these days. Even fighting with uh, Britain, obviously, but it it really does look as if politics has infiltrated this Uh, in our own country. Nobody liked Trump. Nobody wanted to give him any credit. Nobody wanted to do any deals. Uh, Europeans are mad at Britain over Brexit. Like, unfortunately, millions of people are dying while we have these political battles.
1: Absolutely. And I, you know, I've said all along, you know, people have talked about the health impact of this and the economic impact of it. But there's also a major political uh, story here. And, you know, what I see in Canada, because that's what I tend to focus on particularly is that, you know, for Mr. Trudeau, he knows that this is the one issue that stands in the way of his majority government this Mm -hmm. year. And he, he will say just about anything to try and divert attention from it, to try and get the message out that we're just in great shape. But the reality is that we are three to four months behind where we should be. That's three to four months of more deaths, more shutdowns, more economic damage, more social and mental damage. And as I said, somebody needs to take accountability for that. I wish wish someone in the federal government would stand up and say, yeah, we messed up. They'll never do that. You know, right. it's, uh, I think I know what happened with this. Um, you know, I hypothesized what the various reasons are, and it's some, something to do with the relationship with the industry. It's something to do with when they actually started negotiating contracts. It's something to do with the fact that Canada contributed nothing to the development. But I think, I think part of it is they got approval earlier than they expected, and they didn't plan for that scenario. You know, I think that they thought that they were going to get approval for vaccines here in Canada in the first quarter of 2021, not in December. And, you know, but any thinking person would have said, "Okay, well, we've got that scenario. Therefore, we need this much vaccine. What if we get approval in the fourth quarter of 2020? In that case, we need this much vaccine by this time. And they didn't do that.
0: Yeah, that seems pretty obvious.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I think journalists particularly, yeah, and I've been frustrated by the fact that they have not done this, is press Mr. Trudeau on why do we not have more than 6 million vaccines by the end of March.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, we're, we're in 12 months into this pandemic, anyway you cut it, even though some of the information was there earlier, and we have vaccinated under 2%. Of Canada's population, That's right. just that fact alone is uh, yeah. disturbing, frightening, and you know, depressing.
1: It is. <laughs> it is, and you look at what's happening in the U.S. The vaccine is flowing like crazy, and of course, yeah. you know, in Canada we like to say, "Well, we're doing much better than them." Well, the U.S. is yeah. booming right now with vaccine, and yeah, they <laughs> they'd like to have more, but you know, lots of people are getting by. They're vaccinated. They vaccinated 1.6 million people the other day. You know, well, it was day.
0: interesting, even with uh, the new president, Biden, who was promising, you know, a uh, uh, 100 million vaccines in 100 days. And the head of the CDC said, that's what we're doing right now. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and then know. A, a journalist did sort of say, could you step up your game a little bit? Because well, the numbers I mean- are...
1: Yeah, and Biden did. He added another yeah. 50%. Yeah, but, no, uh, no, for sure. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, the U.S. is a little behind where they said they wanted to be. Yeah. They said they would vaccinate 20 million people by the end of December, and they vaccinated 20 million people by uh, this week. So yeah. they're about three weeks behind where they wanted to be. So. Yeah. Which
0: is better than four or five months or six months? You you raised an interesting point because uh, you know we are where we are now. So uh, the question is, can we learn? Will we learn from these situations and figure out what to do next? So just I was I was reading something yesterday that I mean it's kind of obvious, but it just troubled me the you know the long term consequences of school closures and remote learning on social and cognitive development. It's not just that they might be behind in their school year. It's just that the the young mind at that point grows at a certain rate. And if it develops at a certain rate, and, and if that's somehow stopped, I mean, we see it as a result of poverty or any number of other things. We've got that situation we've got businesses that will never reopen mom yeah. um, and pop shops that you know two yeah. man bands they they can't survive this uh, they may or may not have been eligible for government programs but they just won't people are now ordering everything online and buying from the big box cuz it's the only thing that's open it seems we we had such a short term perspective on this right from the beginning. We didn't even imagine that this might last a year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, I just keep coming back to the point that, you know, Canadians should be outraged. We should not be in this position. You know, we should be in a much better position than we are. It, it, It's crazy. But Canadians, you know, I, I get frustrated with a lot of Canadians because they sit there and say, oh, yeah, OK, well, that's fine. We're a little behind. But you know, but it's people, good enough. Yeah, yeah, we're losing 100 people a day yeah. you know, in the country. So, yeah, it's um, it's extremely frustrating that we are where we are. And and coming back to the learnings issue, um, you know, I, I shake my head because I was, I was around for SARS. I was involved in SARS. I was directly involved in H1N1. And both times we said, OK, we're going to take the learnings. We're going to apply it for the future. And we didn't.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think any, I certainly can't get past the notion that we took all those existing stockpiles of yeah. PPE and threw it out for a, a short-term budget, like, oh, we saved $50,000 here or $100,000, and then we're left with nothing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was involved in that. You know, I mean, we talked about the national stockpile, emergency stockpile after H1N1 and how it was important to keep that up. And, you know, we needed a supply of antivirals and we needed a supply of PPE and we needed to make sure we had domestic vaccine production and so on and so forth. And it didn't do any of that. And yeah, the, the real shame is that we had the PPE. They let it go outdated and they threw it in the dumpster and, you know, and and weren't prepared. And, and. You know the double whammy there was that all the production had moved offshore, so we didn't even we couldn't even produce any. We
0: couldn't even create it. Like this is what I don't understand. I mean, presumably, if you had PPE stockpiled for use in a crisis, if you know its expiry date is six months, hands, you take it out, you deliver it to institutions that are going to use it on a daily basis. Every hospital uses PPE yeah. every day, yeah. and and fill it up. And you've got time to order it. Even if you've killed the manufacturing here, you've still got time to order it.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's not rocket science. I mean, it's it's (laughs) inventory management. (laughs) Yeah. uh, uh, Yeah. So that's frustrating. And what I worry about, Pamela, and I think Canadians should be worried about now that, that, you know, you start to think beyond vaccines uh, is pharmaceuticals in general. Mm -hmm. China manufactures most of our pharmaceuticals now. I mean, I... I, you know we have to address that, and Canada is not going to be able to manufacture all its pharmaceuticals in Canada. No. You know, we should be thinking about, you know, working with the U.S. because that's where a lot of the pharma companies have their big bases. Uh, work with them, work with Europe, whatever, and we could produ- We could actually develop a North American strategy for producing essential pharmaceuticals in North America somewhere, so that when you know the crises hit we're actually going to be able to have product cuz i you know i wouldn't trust china uh on anything right now. And I think most Canadians feel that way. No,
0: I think that's what's happened, which is it's been a very quick uh, education on how vulnerable we have made ourselves by handing over uh, production of many, many things. I mean, pharmaceuticals are life and death. So that one, that one we've got to take seriously. But if we just want to buy cheap goods in the big box stores, uh, we're going to pay for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Down the road. (laughs) They're they're cheaper on Tuesday, but when you don't have any, you know, capability, is it, do you think it's reasonable that we could develop a, um, I don't know, a significant manufacturing uh, presence here in Canada of pharmaceuticals just in, just for that backup system?
1: Yeah, I think so. In fact, uh, Glaxo had a manufacturing facility in Mississauga. It was a major global manufacturing operation. A number of other companies did. Many of those facilities are gone now. But many of them have been sold off to other uh, contract manufacturers in pharma. So actually, somebody just bought the the Glaxo manufacturing facility uh, in Mississauga. Um, they're a contract manufacturer. The government of Canada go to them and say, right. "You know, what what's your capabilities? You know, could we do a contract with you and get you to produce product A, B, and C, which are essential to our healthcare system? You know, something to that effect." The generic companies, which we you know, we uh, favored for so many uh-huh. years in this country, um, you know, why can't they do it? You know, why the ones that are off patent, at least, and say, you you know, let's get a contract and you have to ensure that under that contract, you can produce these products at will. Uh, so do like we did on vaccines at Glaxo. So there's ways of doing this. Um, there is manufacturing capability in Canada.
0: So. When the next crisis hits, the next black swan, <laughs> right. uh, you know, pandemic of of some kind, um, yeah. your view is, having looked at all of this from your very uh, particular vantage point, is uh, do some stuff very quickly, like shut a border.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, if we'd had if we had the intelligence network, shut the border. You know, first of all, you set an objective and you say, Mm -hmm. next pandemic, this is what we want to achieve. First of all, we want to have domestic production of vaccines guaranteed within the first X number of months of the pandemic. That's number one. Number two is that we want to, first of all, look around the world, see what's best practice. But let's say we want to be as good as Taiwan was this time. And what did they do and what do we need to do? And part of that is closing the border. And part of our objective should be we don't want to have to close down schools. We don't want we would need to protect schools. We need to protect the economy. So what do we need to do to do that? What is it going to take? And then put, put, put a plan together and put that in place and then implement it. Which we're not and very good
0: at. It's it's kind of simplistic, but if we'd taken yeah. the the hard call at the beginning, shut down the border and shut everything down for two to three weeks, um, yeah. we could have stopped this.
1: Yeah, we could have. Well, we could have made a huge dent in it. There's yeah. no doubt about
0: that. I, agreed. That was stopping it. Is and what 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 do we do now about the variants?
1: Well, I think the variants, I, I'm not too concerned about the variants, other than that we you need to try and stop them from coming into the country. I mean, that that's kind yeah. of the, the new stage of the pandemic. Let's not right. make the same mistakes we made before, letting it in in the first place. Let's yeah. try and prevent them from coming. And so the travel issue is a real issue. And let's make sure we minimize that impact. I'm encouraged by what I hear from the vaccine manufacturers. And I know that you know right now, they're effective against these variants, and they can make adjustments to the vaccine very easily to ensure that they are. So I think we're safe on the vaccine side, but you, you know prevention is better than having to treat it. so yeah,
0: two uh, two quick questions. Uh, the world was, I think, shocked by how quickly the vaccines uh, were produced. At the same time, were we developing treatments?
1: Yeah, around the world, I think, um, you know, I've been impressed by the number of treatments that have been uh, under development uh, by various pharmaceutical companies since this started. Uh, and what they've done is usually leverage work that they are all, were already done mm-hmm. on viruses and so on. And, you know, they've, they've used that knowledge to uh, pivot into these products. Uh, So, you know, that's always key is you need to be able to treat it, too, not just prevent it, because some people are still going to get sick. So,
0: Yeah, uh, that's I mean, that does seem if there's any silver lining in this, it does seem that the the first um, vulnerable population that was hit continues to be the most vulnerable population. The the uh, elderly, particularly those trapped in long term care facilities.
1: Yeah and uh you know the reality is the long term care facilities I mean right now for us the the only w- real way out is vaccination you know you yeah. you've, you've got to be able to vaccinate the people in there and the people going in there um because the other strategies are hard to implement but uh
0: And do we know or do we not know whether having covid actually means you are immune for some Length no. of time?
1: No, we don't know that. There's a couple of things we don't know. One is that, yeah, that if you get COVID, you're not necessarily uh, immune going forward. Uh, so they don't know the answer to that, but yeah. chances are you're probably not. I actually know a, a friend whose whose uh, brother and his whole family have had it twice. So, oh, really? Yeah, there are incidences of that. The other one is once you get vaccinated. Can you still spread it? Right. So we don't know the answer to that question either.
0: So. The uh, the one thing and and I, I just so appreciate all your time and information here and and maybe this is my own little hobby horse, but I don't understand why we've made testing so difficult. Uh. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. No, that was in one another paper I wrote, and you know it was one of the points I was making is that tr- you know for some reason Health Canada. Didn't want to approve those tests because, you know, but and, and I have a huge problem with Health Canada. I mean, <laughs> they, are, they are the slowest agency in the world. I've been yeah. involved with them in pharma, in vaccines and in, and in, in marijuana. So,
0: yes, in um, your new job as a board member. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, I'm you know, they they are really difficult. And, you know, yeah, we can give them credit for approving Pfizer early, but that would have never happened if they d- didn't know the U.S. FDA was going to approve it the next day, which they did. Right. Right. So, um, yeah, so on the testing, you know, th- you use tests for two different things. First of all, diagnosis, and secondly, mm-hmm. screening. And, exactly. You know, the PCR test is important for diagnosis. the best test we have. It's good. You know, and and unfortunately, our technology and we don't have the companies in Canada that could have done this. I was talking to somebody in Florida and they said there's a place right around the corner from them that can do a PCR test in 24 hours and they can get the results to them. So that's a rapid PCR test. Yeah. But the other rapid tests, you know, you're not going to use those for diagnosis because there's too many false positives, negatives, whatever um, they're not as accurate, but you can use them for screening. So we should have got those out into the marketplace so that we could use them for schools, for example. I mean, they were using yeah. them for or essential sports. workers
0: that have to work yeah. on the subway system or at Walmart or
1: Costco or test yeah. them when they go into work. Absolutely. I mean, they used them for the NBA and the NHL uh, back right. a few months ago, and it seemed to work pretty well for them. Why can't we use them? So I don't know. I, I don't get it. Um, you know, Health Canada was reluctant to approve them. Um, I think that was a mis- big mistake.
0: Well, for those of us who travel, I mean, even, you know, a person going between Saskatchewan and Ottawa, you know, for my own safety and the that of people around me, you know, I want to test before I go. I want to test when I land. I want to be able to say to people, you know. Uh, Yes, I've been on a plane and I've traveled from one province to another, but I'm fine. It's so difficult and the results take three four five six days well by that time you might be on a plane back to where you came from
1: that's right yeah yeah so that was you know that's another part of the whole pandemic preparedness is your ability to test yeah you know so that is we think about going forward and we think about stockpiles and so on you know we didn't have the pcr machines to do the kind of testing that needed to be done through this so again nobody was thinking about that yeah
0: well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about today. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, that this is going to uh, cheer anybody up. But I think if I you uh, if you don't name it, you can't fix it. So,
1: yeah, yeah. You know. I know, and I think you know people should kind of relax a little bit. Realize that they're not going to get vaccinated until September, October. Most people, we're yep. not going to get more than 6 million vaccines before the end of March. It isn't going to happen. And all this other information that's being thrown around is just diversionary. I mean, it's yeah. it's not really that relevant. Just
0: um, hunker down and stay as safe as you can and be at home if you can. And
1: Yeah, and realize that the federal government messed this up and uh, they can't do anything about it right now. All the calls yeah. to Pfizer or Moderna or whatever else. Isn't going to make. Isn't going to change the movie.
0: Well, I do hope uh, that you continue to speak up, so that when and if we are through this thing, we will really do a proper assessment, so we're yeah. never ever caught like this again. Really appreciate your uh, your insight on this, Paul. It's really Paul Lucas, the uh, from. Well, 25 years at Glasgow Smith-Klein, 16 of those years as CEO and president, and he's paying attention to this. And thank you uh, for at least doing that and keeping us informed.
1: Happy to do it, Pamela. Thank you. Okay.
0: Talk again soon. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. That's it for No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen today.